Hello, Mark and Dan. This is Deb Whitman, and I... It's not like I've just been sitting around looking at my podcast feed, but I noticed that um, you hit 200 episodes, so congratulations, I guess. Um, I I may have listened a little, and I noticed that um, you had lots of really important people to you, like a reanimated Nazi skeleton made of bees and the voice of an elf dentist. But um, I think maybe you had my email address wrong because I never got the invitation to call in or get interviewed because I know that I was a super important part of your experience. Um, so I'll just, um, you know, I'll just be waiting, uh, for your email, like I have been for uh, a few months now, um, but, uh, you can get me, my number is, um, too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle, all the questions and the webs left out to tangle. In 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon, they'll bend your ears with reckless self abandon. The amazing spider talk. The amazing spider talk. Come swing through the air, sit back and prepare for the amazing spider. everyone, I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I'm the founder and editor of AmazingSpiderTalk.com. And I'm mischievous Mark Chinacchio, the founder of the Chasing Amazing blog and author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Well, thanks everyone for joining us for this special review roundup episode of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Dan, I, I don't know if I can catch my breath after that 200th episode celebration. So I guess this is just something that will uh, give people a chance to breathe a little bit. I don't know. What? <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope people enjoyed that episode. But yeah, it was a marathon uh, of producing it. Absolutely. And great job by uh, by you in terms of putting that all together. I, I, I just showed up and looked pretty. So it was easy for me. Well, that was just very kind of you, Mark. Uh, I hope you guys at home enjoyed it as well. Excellent. So, but for today's episode, we're going to be rounding up our Patreon reviews of Amazing Spider-Man Volume 5, number one, and ASM number two, also known by those following the legacy numbers as 802 and 803. And those are the first two issues of the Nick Spencer and Ryan Otley run. Uh, We originally recorded these conversations back when the issues were first released exclusively for our Patreon audience. So, you know, hint, hint, if you want them when they come out, you know what you got to do. Right. You can go over to our Patreon, who it's the wonderful people there that make episodes like this possible. We wouldn't even do this without them. So if you enjoy what you're listening to today, 
go on over to our Patreon account, which you can find in the show notes, and you can get all kinds of additional episodes, artwork, all kinds of things that uh, we don't put in our normal feed until often months later. But uh, enough of all this dilly-dallying. Let's talk about some old comics, Mark. Old new comics, rather. Uh, Let's get right into our review of the enormous Amazing Spider-Man number one, or is it 802? Who can really say these days? Who knows? <laughs> What's We're not here to talk about rejected D-book titles. We're, uh, we're here to talk about the brand new rebooted all new amazing spider-man number one slash legacy numbering 802 <laughs> <laughs> what is this volume five i i believe it's still yeah i guess it is it's volume five or it's volume four 802 i whatever dan we're here it's a new era we are in the post dan slot universe we have Nick Spencer and Ryan Otley beginning their run officially after the free comic book day issue. It's funny, Dan. I I don't know what it was like out by you on the West Coast, but I didn't get a there wasn't like a ton of buzz about this comic in my neck of the woods here when it came out. I, I mean, considering it's a brand new number one Spider-Man. I mean, what about with you? Yeah, same here. I mean, I I, I think. People have been kind of uh, what the sense I got was a lot of people have been kind of burned out on the book from a while, and a bunch of people jumped back on with this one. But they're like my internet didn't really blow up, well, at least at least in normal ways regarding right. this issue. Uh, although I did get into a, a long-standing back and forth with someone about what constitutes a spoiler for right. this issue. So, so I guess it's I should say right now we're going to spoil the heck out of this issue. Yes, but you know you are our, our fine uh, Patreon listener, so we're, we're assuming that you don't mind being spoiled at this point. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, You're not just some random passerby on Twitter who, like, oops, there's a big panel from the comic that you didn't ask to see. Surprise! Spoiler. <laughs> well, that's generous, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I I didn't get a, a, a huge. There weren't people like rushing to the shop other than me because I was there the minute the shop opened because I had to get my hands on this thing. It's it's just so funny, and, and you know you don't know if it's because I mean obviously there's a lot going on with Marvel right now in terms of you know, just some reorganization, new, new people joining the books, big people leaving the company altogether. So it's definitely kind of a, a, a transition type time for the company. But, you know, certainly thinking back to like volume three and volume four uh, for Spider-Man, you know, they, those, those launches felt like pretty big, big to-dos. I mean, you know, there were like 950 variant covers and, you know, got to catch them all kind of a stuff. And I, 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 my, even my comic book shop, I mean, like, I saw, like, one or two variants, but there weren't, like, a bunch, and certainly none that caught my eye. I mean, 800 certainly had, like, a gajillion of them, including the, the Ditko cover that someone tried to get me to buy for 400 bucks. I, I guess it's a long-winded way of saying that, Dan, while this didn't have a lot of buzz, we're talking about a pretty good comic and about as good of a new creative team launch as you can ask for, right? 
and with some big twists in it that people have been waiting a, a decade for. I mean, right. the big twist that everyone's been waiting for. You thought you would think that that would dominate headlines. And you know, speaking of spoilers, like before we even get into the comic, this is a weird place to start. But the the kind of like faux letters page in this issue, which was the note from the editor about how pain much pains they went to to avoid putting out spoilers for this comic. Like we have been talking about this comic for a long time, Mark, you and I. And all the kind of like tidbits of information we got from it. We got the inked pages with the to have and to hold, you know, spoiler. They were really throwing us in all different directions with what material they put out. And I got to say, like, I am so grateful for that. And I think this should be the standard for releasing a comic is really thoughtful um, releases about what images to put out there, what to reveal to fans and to hold back on revealing secrets. Like I know it didn't make the New York times, you know, front page, this Peter and MJ reunion, but I'm so much happier about it. Maybe their sales won't be as big as that Batman Catwoman book, but I think the people that are going to read this comic are going to read this comic and be attracted by, by it regardless. I don't know how much these New York times articles bring new people to the fray, and, and I gotta say, I have great respect for Nick Lowe and the team for keeping it so tight-lipped. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, it, it, it's good to just have a legitimate surprise, and not even just the Peter MJ stuff. This book is filled with legitimate surprises. Even just the sheer tone of the book is a legitimate surprise. I mean, you know, just talking broadly here as a starting point, Dan, I mean, you know, I, I was not, I don't think I was as, as high on the announcement of Nick Spencer as you were, not because I, I have any issue with Nick Spencer's ability as, as a comic book writer, most of the stuff of his that I've read, I've liked. But I, I was wondering, and I've said this to you, Dan, I've probably said this on the show, that if he was a strong enough of a personality to to truly take hold of this book and and push it in a direction, its own direction, and not just keep the ball rolling from the brand new day slash dance lot years, you know, like I, like I was just dying for, it's not, it's not that I needed Peter and MJ back together or that I needed certain classic villains back at the forefront, like a Mysterio or Kingpin or the lizard. It was just that I I wanted to see someone just pushing it in a new direction again, because I felt like, We've been getting the same thing, whether it was under Dan Slott or just the whole brand new day team. We've been getting the same thing for a decade. That's a really long time to be getting the same thing, right? Yeah, and for me, I think that starts with how Peter is portrayed in the comic. For a long time, we've gotten you know, Dan Slott's interpretation of Peter, which was, I think, and I don't want to paint it with any kind of broad brush, but like if I were to sum it up, it'd be like kind of a bit immature, not irresponsible, but like kind of out of his depth, uh, you know, kind of guy who, I, I don't know, like I, <laughs> I'm totally failing at how to, how to describe his Peter because maybe it was just, it was so hard to define. Peter felt very absent during a lot of those chapters, especially a supporting cast. And he felt very fluid. Yes. I feel like like he was very malleable and like would kind of certain 
personality quirks that maybe, you know, it wasn't that they weren't inherent to the character, but like, I feel like they would be exaggerated as convenient and then rushed aside or ignored when they were inconvenient. And that's kind of, uh, you know, like, yeah, I mean, that's, Peter's a weird character. I mean, like we, we were talking about this during the Ditko uh, tribute. I mean, you know, he's an enigma, uh, um, but there are certain things in terms of just how he's generally written and, and, and kind of, you know, just the, just the base level depiction that should be consistent that I think we're lacking um, uh, during Dan Slott's tenure. And again, I, I don't, I, I mean, I know we, it's easy to say Dan Slott the last 10 years, but like, let's not forget. I mean, in the very beginning of Dan Slott's tenure, he was part of a cast for a brand new day of multiple writers. And I feel they all, and you know, you can, you can argue that. And we've had people come on the show and say as much that Dan was kind of the driving force during the brand new day era. So maybe that was why this was the case. But the fact of the matter is even when it was Mark Guggenheim or Mark Wade or, you know, any of these guys, the, these kind of inconsistencies would rear their head. I think the thing that struck me the most about Nick Spencer in this issue from a writing standpoint was this just felt very self-assured and confident in, in what it wanted to do. This was like reading like a Roger Stern writing Spider-Man. Like he knows what he wants to do with this book and he's just going for it. And I, I love that. Like I was pleasantly surprised by just how confident this book reads. A hundred percent. I mean, I, that I became inarticulate just a few moments ago over how to describe <laughs> Peter Parker, a character we've done hundreds of hours of conversations about, like speaks <laughs> to a problem. And, you know, we can love or dislike, you know, as many, probably equally number of books during the past 10 years run. And this is just one book of a new run, right? So we can't really make any kind of claim for consistency. But this issue feels so strong in the responsibilities of the writer. The writer of this book felt like he was someone who wanted to take ownership over all of the different aspects of the character from all different parts of how he's been told but also answer inconsistencies and really form a very concrete understanding of what makes this character tick and how he operates and what his world is like. And I don't mean to put down the other books that we've been getting or any other writers, but it's something that I have longed for with this book. And I, I, you said it best when you texted me, is I had to have multiple cigarettes after reading this book. <laughs> because like I haven't had this feeling with the Spider-Man comic in such a long time or you know, it it felt so assured and I think the place that that comes out as I have constantly harped on is the monologuing this book the interior thoughts of Peter Parker I can't tell you how much I've missed them it felt like returning to an old friend you know I, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull something from another corner of my life here, Dan, and, they, and tell me if you agree with this analogy. But um, when I when I was working in newspapers, we, we had this one editor who was great, but like, it always felt like whenever he was working the desk, there was a lot of chaos. Like, like, we wouldn't know what the late story was going to be until like the last possible minute, you know, like we were waiting, you know, waiting on things to come together all the time. And, 
And the other editors used to joke when this guy was overseeing the ship that it was like jazz. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, and they were like, jazz is good. And jazz is, you know, and jazz is okay sometimes. But every once in a while, you just want it to be a symphony. Everyone needs to know their part. Everyone needs to, you know, play, play what's written on the page and, and not improv or go crazy or leave something to the last minute. And what I'm trying to say is I, I feel like as much as we liked elements of, of the previous run, a lot of times it also felt like jazz. And I don't even know if Dan Slott knew where it was going um, or if Marvel knew where it was going. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and again, like you said, we can't draw huge conclusions from one issue here, but I, I, I feel like this comic plants the seed for what five or six different subplots. And it's like they they all feel very like assured and just kind of solid in, in, in the setup. Uh, not that we know everything that's about to happen. We don't. And there's plenty of mystery remaining in a lot of these, but like there's, there's literally like two years worth of comics that got put forward here. You know what I mean? Like, like it's, it's all there. There's a roadmap to about six different arcs that, that they can get three or four issues out of. So like, let's, let's see where it goes. But like, I, I, like I haven't had that in a while, you know, like I, going back to the last two number ones that we got for volume three and volume four, there wasn't even that Parker Industries one that was dense as anything. I didn't feel like there were all these different stories to be following. It was it was jazz. It was like, oh, there's a little bit here, and then there's a lot here, and now this guy's gonna play a solo for five minutes. Oh, and here's twenty minutes of a drum solo no one asked for. You know what I mean? Like, so uh, <laughs> you like this metaphor? I do because I think it's appropriate. I mean, I like jazz. I'm a, I'm a big fan of jazz music, but. You know, there are certain situations you don't want jazz. <laughs> <laughs> I think the the best comparison we can make for this issue, and I think it's an apt one, is going back to Dan Slott's first issue when he fully took over the title and we got the first big time issue, right? Because I, I think actually in a weird way, a lot of the stuff that happens in this book is very similar to what happened in that book. We've got this kind of citywide threat and, uh, you know, Spider-Man dealing with that and we've got a bunch of sh- changing status quos with his work and a bunch of subplots introduced. It's characters like, you know, uh, staring at Spider-Man from a distance and, and things like that. And I, I was surprised, maybe not surprised, because it seems obvious reading this, that Spencer, you know, made note in his interviews with all the various publications that um, he how much he was moved by Slot's first issue of Big Time, that it kind of welcomed him to the city of New York, because... I felt like this issue reads a lot like that, but I thought this one was not, I don't want to use your metaphor because I think you're patting yourself on the back too much, but oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> the, the developments of this issue felt a lot more organic to the character and the situation he uh, was in. And I, I was expecting to kind of like get thrown into this issue and see a lot of the slot run kind of pushed aside to kind of pave a new path forward. But this thing doubles down on Slot's run and uses it as a springboard in a way that I don't even think Slot thought to to take his own work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was somebody who was following me, you know, was in my Twitter feed that mentioned something about, oh, this seems like it's like really thumbing its nose at Dan Slot. And I'm like, I felt the opposite. I mean, yes, it makes some 
legitimate changes to what Dan Slott had put forward, but it used, like you said, it uses it uses Dan Slott's work as a springboard to get you there, and it does it in a very organic, logical way. It doesn't just be like you know, oh, sledgehammer of uh, of of uh, plot change here. You know what I mean? Like it's just like, oh no, well. You know, we're going to go in this direction instead of going to that direction, and 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 it was both surprising and and rational and logical, and wasn't just a writer saying like I didn't like where this last creator left all the toys in the toy box, so I'm going to rip them all out and start all over again. See, I'm using more metaphors, Dan. I'm just going to go all metaphor for the rest of this episode. Well, this thing isn't likely to kind of like garner the anger that something like The Last Jedi got from people online. I mean, it's also not Star Wars or a movie, but (laughs) um, like that movie very much, you know, J.J. Abrams set it up and I'm admittedly not a fan of J.J.'s Star Wars movie. Um, but like the last Jedi is like, it's like a bad improv, improv partner. Like uh, he just right. said like, no, like I don't want to <laughs> <Go> play. <then. laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I don't want to play with what you've given me. And this thing is very much yes. And you, you know, uh, it, it wants to play with what Dan Slott set up, but is also, I think, corrective. Like there are a bunch of inconsistencies with the character that we've pointed out from Dan Slott's run that like weren't being dealt with, but this thing deals with it in a way that doesn't slap Dan Slott in the face, but also go- makes you go, "Oh, good! I'm so glad they finally addressed that." Like this year, do we want to start talking about specific plot points? Now? Yeah, like sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, but, like, but before we even get to that, like, do you, can we just t- say talk about how the issue itself is structured? Yeah, absolutely. What do you want to say about that? I just loved how it was structured, you know, like how it kind of weaves in and out of time. It's a, kind of something you can do in like uh, like a first issue of something where you're given like the opportunity to do like a time jump. And there's clearly a several weeks time jump since we last saw Spider-Man at the end of, I guess, 800 would be the last in-continuity-ish tale. I, I guess we don't really know where 801 fell uh, all over the timeline, I guess. Um, and I, I like that there was kind of this like boldness with wrestling all these different timelines. I mean, that's a really hard thing to do competently, and this thing doesn't skip a beat. And it also really put to rest a lot of my concerns about Spencer's uh, ability to tell a tale that's done in one story or done in a book or two while still stringing things along. Because like I don't know how many of his different stories you read from like Ant-Man to Superior Foes or to The Fix a lot or the Captain America a lot of his books were long ongoing tales in like the Brubaker fashion and this was very much like oh we got a story that concluded itself in one issue and still left us hungry for more and I think that's the perfect balance for a Spider-Man story and I was nervous about that and this put all that to rest yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I said, this this seeds this seeds a bunch of different stories that I'm assuming he's going to come back to and and elongate. But at the same time, this this comic is self-contained enough that you can pick it up, read it, and and be fine with it. Like you're not you're not coming in. I don't feel like you're coming in in the middle of something. That was another one of my concerns going into was, I mean, just because of all of the upheaval in 800, I was like, are we going to be like still cleaning up from that? I mean, I know that you, you you kind of felt the way 800 ended almost like really closed the door on everything, which I guess it does. But I feel like a less confident writer would have 
well, I got to go back to 800 and clean up some more stuff involving Jonah or Flash or Osborne or whatever. And 800 feels like in the distant past now to me. Yeah, and, but, that's not a, and, and I liked 800, but you know what I mean? Like, I, yeah. it's just, it's, it just, it's like, yep, that happened, and now we're, we're doing this stuff, you know? Like, well, like that's we're moving how you, forward. That's how you know how successful this is, because like, I, I, like you said, I legitimately said the thing that bummed me out about 800 was it felt so final, and then they felt the need to add on more teases at the end for what's next, and I didn't want those teases. I just kind of loved the finality of it. But that a book could get this, me this excited for something new... That that just speaks to its incredible success. That like it took someone who was kind of seeking finality and said, "Here's a fresh coat of paint that you didn't see, foresee coming." So let's talk about some similar plot. So, so let's talk about some plot points here, if we may. Sure. Because um, this, you know, like I said, I mean, there's a lot of different things being seeded here. I think some will probably bear more long-term fruit than others. I mean, maybe for something that's more fun but less fruity, if you will. Uh, let's, let's talk about the Boomerang plot, which, of course, ended the free comic book day issue. Is kind of like the big surprise because I didn't know how much that was going to be a thing. And, and for the most part, Boomer, you know, Fred, um, Fred Meyer's uh, awful, horrendous roommate is pretty much everything you expected him to be, maybe even worse in this comic. But it's also kind of like, I, I'm I'm getting the sense in this is like he's just going to kind of be in the background part of the supporting cast. They might, you know, there's this whole subplot with the kingpin and with with Boomerang as well that might, you know, become a bigger deal. But for the most part, this seems like it's going to be some com- some com- comedic relief, right? Yeah, I was worried that we kind of we we're going to get going to get like a superior foes led Spider Man thing as a as the hook of the story, and really mostly what we get here is just like a reiteration of what we found out in the free comic book day, with some extra funny wrinkles about how terrible of a roommate Fred Myers is, which is the most terrible roommate ever invented. Right, but he can pay the rent, I guess. So yeah, he he can stay, which just goes to show. What truly are our priorities living in major <laughs> cities, right? Yeah. I, I was curious because I didn't remember that Spider-Man knew his secret identity. And so we, I kind of speculated that maybe there would be like some kind of fun back and forth where they both are hiding their identities from each other. Um, but that seems to be very clearly not the case here. Like Spider-Man knows it, that Boomerang is living with him and is using it as some kind of like undercover reconnaissance mission. And room and rental payment. Yes, yes. And I like that Randy Robertson is kind of like, you know, he, he agrees that he's a jerk, but you also I also get the sense that Randy doesn't mind Fred the way Peter does. So, you know, like <laughs> like uh, what's that gonna do, you know? But again, it's it's more for comedy. I don't see this being I like I don't see a three part story of like the roommates, you know what I mean? Like Yeah. Like like maybe if they need a cooling off from a major hero villain arc, they can do like a one and done with the roommate situation. But like, I don't see it going beyond that. This yeah. is just going to be kind of something in the background. Yeah. And Boomerang isn't like elevated to be like a major villain here. He's still just the lovable goofball that we loved from superior foes. Yeah. I mean, they even like, like if you like read the actual, like, language from the book i mean it's like oh he's one of my super villains well he's boomerang you know what I mean? like, 
this brings up one of my favorite things that kind of returns in this book that I feel like we really haven't gotten in such a long time. And it's kind of like Peter's classic problems regarding his dual-natured secret identity, you know, because he can't, you know, like, admit that he knows that Fred Myers is boomerang, but he's going to live with him, you know. And we've got, you know, the the situation with his degree, which we'll talk about. And I felt like, oh, my goodness, Peter Parker is really at the forefront here. You know, like, it, it is all about him and how Spider-Man interacts with his life in a way that we haven't seen in, in, in a bit. And just how, how Spider-Man affects all of these things, you know, like, I mean, it's, it's a theme that comes back over and over again throughout this comic. It's, 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 it's not even just what, you know, I feel like some, not to, not to keep going back to, well, in the past we got, but like, you know, I feel like a lot of times it was like, well, this is how Peter screws things up. And I feel like that's half the equation. It's, and, and this book even kind of addresses that it's, it's not that Peter does the wrong thing. It's that he doesn't always do the right thing. And I feel like with, with when it comes to Peter and Spider-Man, it's, it's not that Peter is, is a bad person or is, uh, you know, incapable or irresponsible or incompetent. It's just that, you know, balancing Peter life and Spider-Man life is just too much, too much for a regular person. So, yeah. and, and that is a, that is a theme that, is inherent to Spider-Man that has been lacking for way too long from this book. Absolutely. So another kind of like micro subplot alongside this is like this Kingpin plot where Spider-Man like breaks in where he thinks there's like a theft going on at this vault. And it turns out that the Kingpin is throwing him like a surprise party to give him a key to the city to admittedly. I think this was my like least favorite part of the book. I'm still a little unsure of like what it means that the Kingpin is going to be like nice to him to drive a wedge between him and the other superheroes. I'm curious to see how this plays out, but like it felt like a very strange uh, beat for me. I, I think that it's just in general, Kingpin being the mayor feels very weird to me. I think intentionally so. And I think it's meant to tie into kind of modern politics. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I mean, you know, as much as I like seeing Kingpin in this book and Kingpin being an adversary for Spider-Man, I mean, if you're going to have Kingpin with the mayor in New York and the Marvel Universe, it's nice to see more than just Daredevil getting to kind of play in that sandbox in terms of the hero villain stuff. But like you said, I mean, the 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 actual um, drama here is is a is a little bit of a strain for me. I mean, like you said, what is what is driving a wedge for him? But at the same token, I do kind of like Kingpin like laying it on thick to Spider Man and and Spider Man just kind of being like, "Hey, I don't <laughs> trust this." Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it, I mean, it was like naturally funny. Like, oh, I I got the key. I can I could skip the line at Cass. Hey, wait a second. This is this is this is like uh this is this. You know, this is going to be like one of those Faustian things, right? I mean, it was it was good. I liked I liked the humor in that, but yeah, I this 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 plot seems a little flimsy. We're going to have to see where it goes. Yeah, I did one of the things I did love though, and and if people thought that Nick Spencer was going to keep politics out of his Spider-Man comics, I think he'll find clever ways of putting it in, and the Kingpin is one of them. This kind of like democracy is dumb thing got me a good laugh out of me. Yeah, or, or I mean, or even just, you know, I don't know, you know, like what timeline is, is this? You know, what did he get the reality stone? I mean, you know, you can 
say that about a lot of things right now, not in comics. <laughs> <laughs> well, the biggest plot, I think, in this issue, other than the alien invasion, and probably the most substantial like change for Peter is this Empire State University plot where he's invited to this like big town hall meeting where uh, Cindy Lawton uh, is introducing this this technology that scans to see if you've you know stolen uh, work from another colleague and Peter gets outed for stealing Otto Octavius's research to get his doctorate um, and is kind of publicly mocked. What what do you, do you think about uh, this whole development in the book? I thought it was great. I mean, it's a, it's another great throwback. I mean, you know, the whole ESU connection. I mean, you know, I'm reading this, and I know I saw my my Twitter timeline kind of blew up with everyone debating who this uh, this the woman character was because you know Peter. I, I'm already forgetting her name. I'm Cindy sorry. Lawton. Cindy Lawton. Um, Apparently they dated, but no one knows who this character is, right? <laughs> I she seems so familiar though. Like Cindy Lawton seems like a Spider-Man like high school college friend name. Like to the point that I was like, maybe she was a character during early Spectacular uh, for a bit. Was she one of the college friends? I felt like Nick Spencer nailed the naming techniques for Spider-Man characters so much that he incep- pulled Inception on my mind, and I right. just accepted that Cindy Lawson had always been there. Oh, yeah. Like, I absolutely 100% just kind of assumed, like, oh, maybe this was, like, a, temp- a contemporary of, like, Deb Whitman or something, right? I mean, that was yeah. kind of where I was at with it, you know? Like, no no more, no less. But that's not the case. But regardless, like, yeah, but th- but that's the whole point. Like, this 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 whole plot kind of gets brought in and it feels natural because it, it's it's throwing back to we, this is familiar this is familiar territory this like facet of Peter's life where you know again the fact that he's Spider-Man wreaks havoc on it and he can never truly reach his potential but even though on his own he's pretty he's pretty good i mean like he makes that comment like oh you know maybe i should have just come clean about the fact that i didn't own i didn't earn my um my doctorate and, you know, the person who invented all this Parker industry stuff was a college dropout. Maybe it wouldn't have mattered. And that's a great point because that's the thing. Like the technology that he created was still his technology, you know, like he, he did that, but he carried out a lie. So now it's all negated. And, and, and you know, he carried it, 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 it's It's just a great little like throwback to this idea that Peter is it's not that Peter is flawed. Again, it's it's the balance of the life that that's flawed, that that makes him flawed. Yeah, I mean, do you, do you have anything to add to that? I'm just so glad it was addressed that he was just kind of living this lie. I, mean, I think it would have felt more and more uncomfortable to say Dr. Parker as the years went on without actually addressing that Peter was taking... I mean, it's Dr. Octopus. I'm not exactly crying for him, you know, but uh, you know that Peter would just accept it as part of his life, I think... As sticky as it is, like, you know, he should have come clean long ago. It was a weird character beat, but I love that Nick Spencer found a way to make it so Spider-Man oriented, that it was all about his inaction, right? Like, to me, that was the most, one of the most brilliant things in this comic, is that, like, he found a way to make these things that I think you and I had complained about previously as... Uh, you know, kind of like character beats that rubbed us the wrong way and found a way to make it es- essential ca- Peter Parker character beats 
by saying no. And a central part of his character is that he's inactive. Uh, like, that's what got him into this mess in the first place. And I, I don't know. I thought that was absolutely brilliant. And I thought also, like, as the, a fallout to that, him losing his job at the Daily Bugle was also really smart considering, like, it didn't really make, as much fun as it was to see him back in that environment, it didn't make a ton of sense to have Peter Parker going back to a dying industry. Yeah, I mean, it just, it felt like a weird kind of bailout, wasn't, and like you said, it wasn't fully fleshed out in terms of actually reflecting the reality of the situation right now. I mean, like, I get that we don't want to make Peter a photographer anymore, but I I, I don't know how making him a reporter at the Bugle is going to, do anything for him. I mean, I guess, again, it, it puts him in contact with characters like Robbie, who, you know, we had a pr- pretty good exchange between Peter and Robbie here, where, <laughs> you know, once again, you know, for all you people who like to keep score, does Robbie know Peter is Spider-Man? I mean, there, there's there's some heavy implication here that he does, but again, it's never said, and I like that it's never said. It doesn't need to be said, right? Robbie, if he ever dies, needs to be the one character that, like, to his dying breath, doesn't admit that he knows Peter is Spider-Man. Like, like Flash Thompson admitted that, you know, he knew. Like, Robbie should never give up this ghost. He needs to play around with this forever. But then on his tombstone, it shows up. I knew. <laughs> <laughs> My other favorite kind of run-in with a supporting character after this was the brief reappearance, uh, well, I guess, like a, or reporter saying the name of Sajani Jaffrey on the computer screen that even after she's gone from the book, she finds a way to make a lie and like stab Peter in the back somehow. Uh, like uh, what a great moment to kick him while he's down from this awful, awful character. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she's, she's the worst and I'm not even going to say her name cause I always screw it up right there. <laughs> <laughs> San Johnny. San Johnny. No, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get this great kind of, um, come to Jesus moment with Aunt May. What did you think about that scene? Yeah, I mean, it's something that we haven't seen in a really long time. I mean, we never truly got the fallout with... I mean, there's been so much that between Peter and Aunt May over the last year or two that could have been mined for really good drama in this book that was not. I mean, you know, there was the death of her husband um, or second husband, and then, of course, there was the, the disintegration of Parker Industries after they had put all this money into it and started the Uncle Ben Foundation. And um, and she just she just gut punches Peter there. She just goes goes for the jugular. And good. I mean, because like it's not like it's not like Aunt May's never acted like this before with Peter. I mean, there's been long periods in this book where they've been where their relationship has been strained and you know it's usually tied into peter screwing up because he can't balance his responsibilities and um that's exactly what we got here and and it's long overdue it it it, that 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 felt like it landed for me as a reader like I, i i was feeling it it felt cold in the in the room i was reading that comic book in when i read that section yeah absolutely why why do we take such pleasure in peter's pains it's not even that I'm taking pleasure, Dan. I just, it's good storytelling, you know, like, let's yeah. like, these are, these are, this is how you build a universe of stories, you know, like instead of just ignoring obvious issues that could lead to more drama because you're too fo- laser focused on some larger drama that you're working on, just plant seeds everywhere. I mean, you know, you're going to have a whole garden of stories to go to at some point. Yeah. I mean, metaphors. The, the, <laughs> <laughs> this this Aunt May thing, I mean, it's 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 
it is allowing consequences to happen because that's how the character would react. Instead of coming up with some three-step process to making the character be okay with something out of character and like justifying it some other way. Because you can, you can tell when a writer is going out of their way to justify something in order to make the story smooth. This is a writer who seemingly knows how to make all of this stuff just sing, right? Like, if he's stuck in a hole, like, I have to make this character react this way. I will make a way for that to work for me, you know, in whatever way that is. You know, just embrace it. But, I mean, you, you use the word, Dan, and I think it's, it's the, the, the whole crux of this issue and why we like this so much, consequences. You know, going all the way back to the relaunch of Volume 3, I think the biggest shock you and I both shared at that time as we were just coming out of Superior Spider-Man, where Spider-Man literally was taken over by one of his biggest enemies, doing all this weird and out-of-character stuff as him, and it felt like it was just ripe with opportunity to explore the consequences of Otto's behavior and on Peter's life. And we never, ever, ever got it. Ever. And... Like, here we are in this book, and immediately this book is looking at consequences all over the place. You know, what, you know how these things affect these people that, I, you know, Peter says it, how, how my life as Spider-Man doesn't only affect me, but affects the people that I love. And that's, to me, that is something that has been in part of Spider-Man since the beginning, since 1962. So, like, it's, it just works. It's what works for the character, and why we got away from it, I will never know. Um, but it's just so refreshing to see it go back to that. Absolutely. So let's talk about this aliens slash uh, Mysterio story that we got. I, as soon as I found out that it was Mysterio, I thought, man, this is going to be Mark's favorite comic ever. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's. I, I was actually more interested by the Mysterio Mysterio backup, to be honest with you, because like the Mysterio reveal here is kind of quick and it's over. Although I I, I did like Mysterio's monologue about. Yeah, I just thought I'd go for the brass ring and kill them all. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, yeah, that's just how a crazy person would talk. I like it, you know. Like, um, I what I was what I actually what I was thinking about Dan when I was reading these sections of this alien fight was, you know, you were kind of expressing uh, a little bit of hesitation about Ryan Otley as an artist. Would it work with Spider Man? And like, you know, as as these heroes are tearing through these like green guts and stuff like that, I was like, oh, this looks like this looks like pure Otley for you, right, Dan? Yeah, well, I mean, he's used to doing his guts and and monsters, and like I said, I think during the free comic book day review, like I really hope that they let him let loose on this stuff, and like someone at Marvel, whether it's Nick Spencer or whoever, knows that that is Ryan Otley's, you know, butter. I mean, we got an awesome looking Venom on the back of the cover. And uh, I'm excited to see more of his Venom if we ever get in that direction because his Venom is awesome. And uh, we get these aliens. And then we also get, we'll get to this, but like the cover of the next issue with uh, the lizard on it, it's like pure, awesome, Otley monster stuff. And I am there for that. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we could, we could talk a little bit more about some of Otley's work as we, as we go through this, this episode, Dan. But that was actually the first thing that came into my mind. I was like, all right. Like, I, you know, this guy that, because I didn't read Invincible, Dan. I mean, I've read a little Invincible, but I actually think I read Invincible before Otley came on, because he came on, what, around issue 30 or something? Yeah, it was done by Cory Walker before that. Yeah, I read, I basically read through the Cory Walker stuff. 
yeah, I mean, it, it, I was impressed. Like, it just felt fun and dynamic and kind of kind of weirdly gruesome in a way that you don't see in Spider-Man comics. I mean, the, the fight scenes are a little interesting. I mean, like, you know, we're kind of back to everyone just seems to hate Spider-Man again, which is not that it's not part of the character, but hasn't been for a really long time now, it feels like. And we're just kind of going back to that ground again. So I don't know if that's a logical step or not, but it's there. We got a, we had a Moise Eisley joke from the uh, <laughs> Cantina bar. I mean, you know, like lots of fun nerd stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's not Spider-Man saying, oh, that really old movie with those walking things. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I, I love the Mysterio reveal. I thought it was perfectly like, I didn't need to see a big fight with Mysterio. He's the kind of guy where you figure out his trick and you beat the crap out of him. And I love those kind of four silent panels of Spider-Man just wrapping it all up and that, that great silent final panel with all the webbing just uh, like kind of hanging there. I thought that was really beautiful. And, and it's a good opportunity to point out the colors in this book. Laura Martin and her colors I thought were... So beautiful. Such a wonderful range of coloring here. Everything is like what I want superhero to co- comics to look like. Big, saturated, bold colors. Uh, I-, I feel like I haven't seen a Spider-Man book look like this in a long time. And I've liked a lot of the coloring work, but here it felt like... I, you know, I think it's... um We had uh, Ryan Stegman on the show, and he said he likes to draw the villains a little more animalistic and kind of lean into that when he's drawing them. And I think that's a really awesome thing to think about, right? You're going to superhero comics for something beyond reality. And to me, these colors were the, that version of the, you know, that it's like, I don't care. Like local, you know, like if these are leaning into old school, localized coloring, like give me the big bright red Spider-Man in the green Mysterio. That's what I want. Yeah, it's, it's it's I mean not not to get away from the art for a second, Dan, but it is worth noting, you know, before before we get the to the Mysterio reveal, we kind of have this great climax where you know, despite everything that Peter has gone through through this day, you know, he kind of does the very Spider-Man esque thing during the climax of this battle of just kind of throwing caution to the wind, and if it means his death, it means his death. At least it means he um, saved everybody. We also got probably my other favorite joke from this comic, which was as he's like kind of jumping up towards the portal to find out what's going on with the black cat. And he just goes, now I'm going to go save the day. Bye Felicia. I hope that's not my last joke. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. For me, that like is up there alongside the kind of like the man purse uh, joke from the end of superior. But like for my money, this was better because he acknowledges, like, oh, that was a terrible joke. Um, right. Do you want to run through? Because I have a section in my notes here about the humor in this book. Do you want to run through some of our favorite humorous moments? Because there oh, were absolutely. so many. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, we have we have Robbie with the vibrating chair, which is just comic gold. That <laughs> I literally laughed out loud in my empty apartment reading that moment. It was so funny. Yeah. Um, I liked when they were kind of just running through um, the plagiarists. And, of course, we got a nice one more day dig about someone who stole his soul to Mephisto to pass the LSATs. Um, 
Yeah, um, I loved the kind of like very self-referential comic explanation of the clone conspiracy, where where MJ gets it wrong and Peter corrects her. No, it's a it's it's a brain swap version of me in a clone body of me. <laughs> no, I mean that's the thing. This 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 comic is very kind of hip to what it is and and isn't afraid to kind of poke fun of itself, um, but. For the most part, these jokes land. Like none of them kind of feel awkward or goofy or forced. There's no songs about you know jokes about ringtones. I mean, I, I, I like them all. I mean, I, I, I just thought this is this is the kind of humor I would expect in a Spider-Man book. The only ones that really fell flat to me were like the Guardians of the Galaxy stuff, where it's like doing the kind of like Kiss album thing. I feel like we've gotten that joke a bunch during the Bendis run and and. I know you didn't read that, so maybe that's why it doesn't wrinkle as hard. But, I mean, overall, it's like, I think there's like five really stand-out, laugh-out-loud while reading a comic moment in this, and that's really rare. And 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 also the kind of, like, in-joke comic reader stuff, like the Brand New Day reference that we get in here, um, and the Watcher as the name of the app. Like, I thought both of those were clever. This was probably my other concern, with Spencer and I think you and I even discussed this and, and it's still something I guess to be a little, little cautious about. I mean, I just wonder if he's sometimes too clever for his own good. Like does some of this stuff go over people's heads, you know, like the stuff that's really kind of reaching, reaching deeper than you would expect. It's not like, it's not critical to just enjoying the, the moment and having a laugh and, you know, not, not to, not to, rag on other writers but like like with what, what we see in spectacular right now i don't feel like the jokes are being like forced at a at an unreasonable pace you know like it, it, everything was pretty well spread out yeah so let's get to the big surprise ending of this book i'm not sure how much of a surprise it was for you mark but we've got this great moment where peter you know learns something from mysterio and and decides you know what it is time to kind of take my life back and write everything and go for the big brass ring i'm like i just faced my own death and accepted it in some way like i should go and reclaim the things that i think make me a better person stronger and happier in my life and you get this great kind of um sequence which reminded me of something out of like ultimate spider-man where you've got this long kind of confessional this one-sided confessional from a character i'm thinking about the kind of like aunt may therapy issue um where you don't see who peter is talking to and the whole time i was thinking this could be going several different ways like it could be mj that he's talking to it could be aunt may but he's about to do something very dramatic with someone in his supporting cast where he basically says like I need you to make me better. And ultimately, obviously, we got that Peter is talking to MJ. And after a long time, I mean, it's been a few issues, but I guess essentially like 10 years, we've got what seems to be the return of the Peter-Mary Jane romance. Um, So I guess I'm curious about your immediate impressions reading the comic, and then we can kind of unpack this a little bit. Yeah, I mean, like, I got to be honest, as as this was unfolding and as he's like, you know, kind of comes to this conclusion after fighting Mysterio to make things right. And he's talking to someone off panel and every indication is that it's Mary Jane. I I found myself as I'm reading, still not believing it. Like I was waiting for the swerve because I, I just 
have become so conditioned to the swerve when it comes to Peter and MJ. I yeah. mean, heck, heck, what was it? Ten issues ago, we got the two of them were kissing, and then all of a sudden, literally thirty seconds later, they're not anymore. You know, yeah. and it was all, all a ruse. Which, again, not not to be a Debbie Downer, but you know, I'm still res- you know, let's see what happens in issue two here. Uh, <laughs> but. Um, I, I don't think you do this and then immediately undo it. Like, unless I it's part of a long form arc. I don't think you do either, but let's see, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> fool me once, shame on, shame on me. I mean, you know. Yeah, um, I just think that that would be a step too far for a lot of fans. Right. I probably. Um, it's not 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 the best way to to get a new creative team on. You know, get on get on get on the fans' good side. <laughs> But at the same token, like, just putting aside, oh, yay, Peter and MJ, because we've talked about this, Dan. I mean, like, I am of the mindset. I mean, I hate to sound like, you know, a token Marvel corporate fanboy here, but I don't feel Peter – well, certainly I don't feel Peter needs to be married for me to enjoy Spider-Man comic books. Right. And that's not this. He's not married again. No, I know. But at the same token, like, this relationship – has been damaged for a long time. I mean, I think the last time I really enjoyed reading these two was probably Spider Island. And then that kind of got brushed under the rug because it was almost like, well, they're getting too close. Can't have that. You know and and I mean? even like, then, and not to make this terrible pun, that was like an island to itself, right? Like it was out of nowhere. It was out of nowhere. It, it, it was not earned at that point. And again, it, it got... Pushed away very quickly. Yeah, I, I, it's like, you know, his appeal to MJ about things not being right is, I think, true. I mean, like, it's, it's like we, we've just been working so hard over the last 10 years to put these two characters on opposite ends of the spectrum. I mean, you know, before we started recording, Dan, I, I was saying to you, you know, something that I feel is worth remembering, you know, part of the... the the status quo reboot from One More Day was was that, okay, they weren't married anymore. They were never married. But everything that they did that we saw as readers as them when they were quote-unquote married still happened. It just They weren't married at the time when it happened. They were just dating. And yet, I would say over the last 10 years, that sentiment or dynamic was never reflected with these characters. It was like, Let's just keep them away from each other. Let's just not, you know, like we can't, it's, it's a third rail. We don't want to, we don't going to get, you know, because yeah, I mean, it's almost like they thought, well, if we put them together, we're going to have to marry them again. And we don't want to do that. Right. Which is silly because they, they wrote their out clause. The out clause was, well, this all, you know, they were together. They did all this stuff together, but they just weren't married. If this is truly what this is going to be, you know, let's see where we can go with it because it feels right to have that relationship in some facet here because it's been so critical to this book for so many years. It's hard to read things like the beginning of this book where we get the to have and to hold moment without thinking about that story being about the bonds of matrimony, right? That whole story is about the power of their relationship. And yet if you look at the artwork in this book, Mary Jane doesn't have a wedding ring on. So you're seeing the effects of that retcon at the beginning of this book, you know, but like that moment is so seared in my mind as being a beautiful moment about the power of their marriage. 
So, like, like you said, working our way back here is an act of fixing not only, like, this comic, but, like, the Mary Jane character. You know, it... it to me, I don't think anybody would have accepted any other girlfriend of Spider-Man's, maybe ever, because they know that they were cheated in some way. And so if you really want to work your way back there, first of all, you've got to reinstate this relationship and figure it out and, and deal with it in a natural way. If they're going to break up, like, let's go through that and, and, and see that play out. Now, I think this is probably a move towards a long-term change. Um, and I hope so, because I think this book is missing Mary Jane. And it's missing someone for Peter to confide in who knows his secret and, and, and confide in an honest way. So I, I welcome this change back. I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes. Um, but I do have some uh, concerns about it. And what are those? My main concern is, and, and you kind of addressed it, is that like now we're getting Mary Jane's character changing dramatically within 10 issues of of itself, right? So, like, I buy in this story that Peter has had this revelation about how he needs to change his life and get the things back to him. And I buy that his speech would be very motivating, right? Like, it is a beautiful speech he makes to Mary Jane about the value that she has in his life, where she kind of cuts him off and says, we're always going to be together, Tiger, essentially, right? Yeah. But not 10 issues ago, this exact scenario played out and she turned him down and had him leave her apartment in shame. And that's the way the character has been written for 10 years. And so before we were talking today, I was saying to you, you know, it was an improper writing of the Mary Jane character to have her abandon Peter Parker because of Spider-Man, because she had shown for so long her resolve in the face of that. So to have her 180 because of editorial mandate is improper. But now that we've lived with that for 10 years, is it equally a sin to move her back to her proper characterization? I mean, it's moving her to the back to where she should be, but we've been living with it for so long now. Yeah. I mean, just because it's a course correction doesn't mean it doesn't feel kind of weird and awkward and, and out of nowhere, you know, because I mean, again, like I said, I'm re I'm reading this comic in real time thinking, where's the rug going to be pulled? Because that is how I'm conditioned at this point. And as happy as I was to see that I was wrong and that they were having this very, it felt very sincere reconciliation, like you, I'm wondering, yeah, but was this truly earned? I mean, you know, like, we have to see more. I think it's, I, I, you know, I'm not even because I think that they're going to still fake us out, Dan, but... We got to see more. Like, what does this actually mean? Yeah. Because Mary Mary Jane is a character, too, right? And, right. like, I think there are people that write Spider-Man with very little regard for the supporting cast and their feelings about things, right? And that's when Mary Jane and other characters have felt, like, less than a character, right? But the moments where Mary Jane has become the great character that she is are things like the, you know, the stories from the Tom DeFalco, Ron Friends run, where you're introducing a bit of psychology to that character. But right now, this change for her character feels not psychologically motivated. And that's not to say it won't feel that way in a coming issue. I'm hoping that we get to learn what her change of heart was. I think either way I'll accept it because I'm like, oh good, this is Mary Jane, how she should be written. But I think you could do that and give us a reason for why she changed her opinion. 
Meanwhile, Otley did a great job with the kiss, right? Yeah. Uh, it's so weird reading this book because it looks so much like Invincible. That, like, <laughs> even reading that kiss, I'm like, oh, like, this is uh, Invincible and Adam Eve kissing. You know, like, like, he does a good job of differentiating the two. But, like, his art for me is so tied to Invincible. There are just moments of this where I'm like, just seeing characters without their mask, it's like, oh, this is Invincible. And the kiss to me was like one of those moments. It looks just like Invincible and Adam Eve's famous kisses from that book. But, I mean, yeah. This whole book is stunning, and I feel like, especially when the characters are in costume, it's like so Spider-Man-y. I I, I, I don't know how else to say it. Well, I was going to say, someone who has not read Invincible, this felt very at home and natural and fun for me to be reading from a visual standpoint. Yeah, and I, I, I have to you know, give a shout out to Cliff Rathburn, who's his inker, who came from Invincible with Ryan Otley, who I think really has some beautiful inks here. There, you know, there's just incredible, like, variation in line width that is controlled in a way that, like, you know, I love Humberto Ramos, but I feel like his inkers sometimes have trouble reining him in a little bit. And I think Ryan Otley and Cliff Rathburn have just perfected working together and and now we've got Laura Martin, who's one of the best colorists in the biz, working on this. You know, Otley's pencils are a little squared off, you know? Like, they're they're a bit... Um, everybody's got, like, the big jaws, and, and they're a bit... You know, like, they're big, punchy, muscular characters with big arms, like something from Todd McFarlane. And I thought Laura Martin's colors were so soft and uh, rounded that she really uh, brought a lot to this book. I... I, I I'm looking right now at the kiss scene, and, and the way that their skin is rendered is just incredible. Uh, I, I can't... This art team, I mean, boy, we've been spoiled on this book for such a long time. Absolutely. Um, do you want to talk about some of these backups? Yeah, sure. Um, so the backup, we got uh, the return of Humberto Ramos to the book, but it's still being written by Nick Spencer, um, which I imagine is going to be like kind of how it goes. And I guess we get a little bit more from Ryan Otley in the final two pages or so. Um, what did you think of this Mysterio-centric backup? I mean, it was really weird and dark. Not what I would normally associate with a Mysterio storyline. I mean, I really loved Ram- the selection of Ramos here for that story. I mean, like Ram- you know, like especially when the Lady Beetle shows up, and you know, and the- I forget the character's name. I'm sorry. And like, you know, she's like vomiting beetles and maggots and things like that. <laughs> and yeah. it's just like, 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 you know, Ramos is just, I feel like on fire here. But I mean, this was a, this was a disturbing um, little subplot that also took me a couple of reads to really, I don't want to say develop theories because I don't know. I don't even know what to make of who this character is that kind of emerges from the depths of hell to remind Mysterio that he's got a job to do or it's back to hell for him kind of a thing. Do you have any theories? Well, I mean, I, I was just as shocked as you were reading this. I thought for sure Janice Lincoln was dead in this book. I was like, whoa, Nick Spencer is like, uh, I mean, we get a reappearance of a superior foe. And I was like, man, he's already getting a body count of some of his creations uh, in this book. But obviously that's not the case. But you were right. This imagery is sick. The, um, the image of the judge bursting open and the rats crawling out of him is unforgettable. But, um, 
Yeah, we get this, what seems to be a new villain, some hellish villain. So we're really leaning into the kind of like one more day, brand new day element of things in a way that I think is pretty bold for a first issue to kind of like lean into that kind of like less regarded corner of the Spider-Man mythos. But like, I think if you're going to undo the the Peter MJ thing, you really got to kind of close the chapter in a satisfying way on this Mephisto stuff. And, but I couldn't believe we were getting there already. I mean, my kind of gut instinct, Mark, was that like, oh, this is just Mephisto. But like, at the same time, like, why would you ba- like bother bandaging this guy up? I don't think that Nick Spencer is going to write us the Green Goblin is Norman Osborn as a reveal. Right. Like, I just don't think he, as a writer, would do something like that. And there's the line, you know, where he says to uh, Mysterio that I walked you out of hell. So um, I guess my suspicion is that this is some kind of competing hellish force to uh, Mephisto. Um, but the bandages suggest that, like, they're trying to hide something, right? Like, either yeah. that's the design for this character, or this is someone we know. And again, I mean, to me, the biggest the biggest clue besides the bandages is that um, this character refers to, quote-unquote, knowing Pete better than anyone. And my understanding of the Spider-Man universe is really only the people closest to Peter call him Pete. So I don't know if we're dealing with some kind of deceased friend or family member uh, that knows his identity or what. But, I mean, I don't feel like Mephisto ever referred to him as Pete in, you know, at any point. You know, like it was never, it was, their relationship was more transactional than that. <laughs> Wasn't so chummy. <laughs> yeah, unless it's like kind of like a, meant to be like a joking chummy thing where it's like, you know, because Mephisto, you know, says, like, I know everything about him, you know, and he's like, well, look, I know Pete, too, you know, like, trying to be jokey with Mephisto. And that's the kind of thing where comics can't really lend you in an idea of, like, the cadence of the way people speak. So you're, right. you're not really quite sure. But, like, I mean, just going de- – we talked about death recently on the show. Like, going down the list, like, is there a supporting cast member that knew Pete's identity that wasn't benevolent? Like – Right. I can't imagine this is George Stacy because he really cares about Peter unless he's getting revenge for Peter not taking care of Gwen in some way. Right. You know, like right. but I can't think of someone that would know that much about Peter that had died. I mean, maybe like the demo goblin or something like that. Like uh, I, 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 I I'm I'm stuck on it being someone who is close to Peter. In some facet, like I, I just, um, like you said, I mean, could could Mephisto just be playing around and, and doing that? I guess, like honestly, if we didn't already get this reveal a couple of years ago, I would have said, oh, is this Ben Riley? Yeah, you know what I mean, like like that. It, it it feels like something on those terms. You know what I mean? Like, but we know that that's not the case. <laughs> yeah, so I I don't know who it would be. Like, I don't think it's going to be something lame like Spider Side or something stupid like that. You know. Not to say that that couldn't be made to be cool, but I don't think anybody really, like, is dying for Spider-Side 2.0, as was teased a few years ago. So, I don't know who it is. I'm excited to find out. I mean, it was also, they put out a trailer for this issue, like a video trailer, where Nick Spencer and Nick Lowe both said that this was a new villain. So, like, I'm also open to Spider-Man getting a cool new villain. Like, 
I love it when creators come under this book and they don't just play the hits, right? They're coming up with something new. I mean, this could be the next Moreland, you know? Right. Uh, you know, and I would love that rather than kind of playing all the old rogues. And I also wonder if this is a character that's coming out of hell, like, is this the way that we get Max Dillon back? You know, uh, because, like, they say that Max is in hell, right? So, like, it seems to me that if he walked Mysterio back to life, which was really great to have at least acknowledged in the pages of this book, how did this character come back from the dead? Right. Much less come back from the Ultimate Universe where he's been for a while. Uh-huh. Um, uh, like, I'm hoping that we can get Max Dillon back this way. Time will tell. Well, speaking of old villains making a new appearance, then we had the second teaser which was quite short, but it's um, Peter and Cindy Lawton, and Cindy is is stacking them full of books, and I guess like he's gonna he's gonna go back and earn that degree, and his professor is none other than da da da, Doctor Kurt Connors. There we go, looking less like he just ate his child. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, technically they're alive still; they're just lizard people. Right, I, I, I've lost track. <laughs> <laughs> and his body is no longer made out of brain-like material? Do you remember yeah. that twist? Yeah, I, no. <laughs> I mean, yes. <laughs> I do remember, but I don't think about it often, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> so we get, like, classic lizard back here teaching, and I'm guessing maybe they let him off the hook for eating his family because he was able to bring them back? Comics, Dan. Uh, either way, the important, this, the important thing is with, um, with Otley drawing it, it looks awesome. That's the important thing. Yeah, yeah. I'm super excited for this. Uh, this is gr- a great turn for this character, a great way to use him. I'm curious to see how he got tenure in, in this position. <laughs> um, I, I, that has me thrilled, and um, uh, that's just awesome. I, I can't wait to see how this plays out. Th- this is a great teaser. Um, and also a good setup for what appears to be the new status quo for Peter is if he lost his job, I guess he'll be like a teaching assistant or something. And I've long thought that Peter as college student, teaching assistant, whatever, or eventual professor is the natural path to go for this character. Like, I loved him as a high school teacher, and it only just makes more sense to have him be a college professor. Absolutely. All right. Any any other final thoughts on the stand, or do we want to get to some grades? I mean, I think we've said just about all we can say. This is one of our longest reviews ever. <laughs> um, let's get to some grades, Mark. What are you giving this book? I'm I'm gonna give it an A minus. Just you know, I, I I think I'm arbitrarily deducting the point because I still need to see where this goes and how this is followed up on. But I mean, let it let it. You know, in no uncertain terms, this was about as great as a first issue as you can get for me. And I'm going the opposite, Mark. I'm I'm letting my freak flag fly. Oh. <laughs> I'm giving this one my first A plus on this show. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh well, no, no, no. no. Uh, number nine of Superior got an A plus from me. Okay, there you go. I wow. can't think of reading a Spider-Man comic since we've been doing this show that I have felt more excited by because I think we came on to Superior in the midst of our excitement, right? But even with Superior, there were things where you were like, I don't know how this is all fitting together, right? There's a ghost Peter hanging around. This thing felt like the most assured I've read a Spider-Man comic in maybe my life. I I don't know that I've read a Spider-Man comic that felt this confident. Yeah, I mean, 
like I said, I mean, it's, it's confident and there are at least a half dozen storylines here that I want, I, I'm excited to see where they go next. It's not, I'm like, Oh, where are they going with this? You know what I mean? Like, I mean, probably as we discussed, the only one that leaves me a little less than super enthused is the Kingpin one. Yeah. But like, but like everything else, like I want to see what's going on with Mysterio. I want to see what's going on with Lizard. I obviously want to see what's going on with MJ. I want to see what's going on with Aunt May. I want to see what's going on with the roommates. Uh, you know, like there's a lot going on here and I, and I'm, you know, legitimately intrigued to see what, what Spencer and Otley have in store. So, but I'm still going to say A minus because I like to be arbitrary. That's fine. <laughs> Look, I think my A plus is just really wrapped up in my enthusiasm. Like, there's no perfect comic, and there's I, other than maybe Amazing Fantasy 15. Uh, <laughs> you know, like th- there are few perfect comics. But like in terms of my enthusiasm, like reading this book, I smiled throughout. It felt like re-meeting an old friend. It wrapped up so many things in that I had having trouble with for such a long time in ways that are more clever than I could ever have thought to do them. Like, I don't know if I could ask more out of a first issue than this. And like, I guess I'm just putting my foot down with my enthusiasm. Like to me, this reads like, Oh, we're reading the beginning of a Straczynski run. Yeah. Like definitely. What an exciting thing. Yeah, it's a good comparison, Dan. I think that comparing it to the first Straczynski book is is spot on. And we could probably got twenty more pages than we would have gotten in that book. That's that's very true too. Yeah, more, <laughs> more, please. Yeah. I mean, I can't wait. Two weeks is going to feel like forever. Uh, <laughs> like even just waiting the days to talk to you about this felt like forever for me. Well, Dan. If people were uh, coming back from episode 200 expecting brevity, I doubt they got it with that review. <laughs> uh, you know, our reviews are getting longer and longer, which is deceptive because we've done 800 and 802 so close to each other. Exactly. But uh, why don't we now move along with a snippet of our Patreon review of Amazing Spider-Man number two. Much shorter, this one. Amazing Spider-Man number two slash Amazing Spider-Man Legacy 803 uh, by Nick Spencer and Ryan Otley on art again. Uh, issue number two in this brand new reboot. I would say uh, probably in terms of groundbreaking events, not really where we were in that first issue, but it's still early. So let's 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 kind of just go through what we got here, Dan. Um Let's even start with the front cover. I know you got some thoughts on it, and I agree with them in terms of, you know, just the return to good old-fashioned artwork that is done by the artists of the book that looks like, you know, that matches the story on the inside, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have, we've talked about our feelings about the Alex Ross stuff uh, before, and I, I don't dislike his stuff, but boy, do I vastly prefer, you know, pencils and inks and colors on the cover of a book with a kind of, like, pop-out, eye-catching image done by, like you said, the same artist. Even if it kind of teases a story that mm, doesn't really happen in the, in the book here. 
Well, right. Yeah. But it's silly to be sitting here and being like, well, what should a cover look like? I mean, it's I'm more of a, a fan of art like this for a cover that kind of at least plays with the story idea. And again, matches the art stylings of the interior as well versus you know, the, the Alex Ross conceptual covers or like even if you go back to the early aughts with, what was it, like uh, Kari Andrews who would do a lot of covers uh, yeah. during, the, you know, which was a shame because you had JRJR, you would think he would just do them, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, right. It's like, you already have a superstar artist, why do you need, <laughs> anyway. So, I mean, it's uh, nice to like look through your collection and be like, this is the art indicative of what's inside. Like, I remember... The art. I can look through like the Alex Ross thing and be like, "Oh yeah, who did the the art in this particular issue?" You know, like you you want to see some of these interior artists be given more money to make a really striking image. If they're good enough to do what's inside, like you'd hope that they could really wow us on the cover. And I guess that works for a lot of people regarding Alex Ross. They consider him like a real wow factor. But sometimes you want these you know pencilers to really bring their A game. I agree with that, but. In terms of those interiors, uh, both artistically and word-wise, <sighs> again, it's it's the second issue in, so I don't want to like be jumping all over the Spencer Otley team. But I mean, it, it, this does kind of feel a little bit of a letdown after issue one, right? Yeah, I, I don't want to say that I was like disappointed or let down. It's just not really what I was expecting, and I don't think it like carries the torch from issue one like terribly well we had all those news stories teased in that book and it seems like we're already getting into like teasing even more and i was kind of hoping that we would like get some clarity on some of those stories i guess we kind of do with the lizard but i found it kind of unsatisfying so it's not that i was disappointed it's just like oh i didn't think we would be going this direction and i was kind of setting my hopes on you know, leaning into some of this other stuff a little bit harder. Right. And I mean, I think structurally it was a little, little disorganized for lack of a better word. I mean, we kind of get this intro with uh, a rifle, you know, like a poacher killing a a rhino. And uh, you've pointed out that you believe it's to be the rifle belonging to Mr. Sergi Kravenoff, AKA Craven the Hunter. Uh, or I guess it could be the chameleon if we want to play with our Craven off history here. But it's not referred to again, so I guess it's another teaser. I, I mean, you know, I, I, who knows? Well, that, but that's just the thing about it is like, is it a teaser or is it like a tone setter? This kind of elephant hunt sequence, like, it, like is it because it doesn't really do a great job of either, right? It's it's so disconnected. It doesn't really feel like a good teaser. Like it has nothing to do with Spider Man. It looks like it's in Africa, you know, um, and. And it doesn't really have much to do with, like, tonally with the rest of this issue, which it suggests some sort of downfall for Spider-Man. And that's not really the tone I got of this issue. It's kind of a joyful issue, if an- if anything. So it's like, I, my suspicion is that it's setting up to be read in a trade. But as a single issue, uh, compared to the first issue, it, this, this structure, is, it, it just doesn't really, you know, just don't do something like this if, you, if it's not necessary. Yeah, I mean, and we're kind of jumping around here because then then we go to this funny but kind of out of nowhere little fight between Spider-Man and Man Mountain Marco and the Ringer. So, you know, total D-list Spidey villain special here over first edition used books. 
which I, I, I mean, I laughed. I, I, I won't lie. It's a funny gimmick. But then we're, we're jumping to Peter and MJ, and then we're jumping to Peter going into see the lizard, which was kind of where the first comic left off. So, you know, in terms of where we are in the timeline, it's not clear, which is a little frustrating. Yeah, I mean, uh, like when we got to the lizard scene, I have to admit my initial reaction was like, wait a minute, like, didn't he already attend a class with this guy? Is, is, is that how you felt? Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, it, 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 the, the story jumps off here when they, we get back to the lizard story as if it was literally taking off where the last page of the of issue one ended. But it's not like it was the first page of issue two. So it, it just seems like we were past that. But now we weren't again. So I, I just don't know where it fell. It, 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 very confusing. And there's, there was an opportunity, I think, to kind of like lessen that blow because there's a lot of narrative or narration being done by Peter. So like there was an opportunity to suggest that what we were seeing in the beginning was a recollection of his until we're kind of brought back to the present in his surprise of seeing the lizard as the teacher of this classroom. Right, right. Now, in terms of the fight with Ringer and Man Mountain, just not to jump around, but just to kind of try and go at least sequentially in this book. I mean, again, it was fun and silly, but we 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 would we got these a lot. I felt during the dance slot era. I mean, you know, we would like all of a sudden have like a random fight against someone like the iguana or White Rabbit and her and her gang, her gang. You know what I mean? And and I, you know, outside of just kind of showing that. Peter is feeling more chipper and springier and more forgiving. You know, he's going to start a book club with these two when they get out of prison, I guess. Uh, it's kind of one of the punchlines. I don't know if this really aids the story in any way outside of just kind of being silly. Yeah, I agree. And I, and I think it kind of we're talking about the structure of the book, too. It, it's like you introduce these guys, you don't use them anywhere else in the book. And you've got these two other. Now, I wouldn't say like. Black Ant or Taskmaster are quite as D-list, but, you know, they're characters from, like, books Nick Spencer has written before. Like, he used these guys a lot in his kind of, like, Captain America stuff. Um, you know, he's, he's fond of bringing back his characters, but I thought to myself, like, why not have the opening characters be Taskmaster and Black Ant or vice versa so that, like, you know, these characters have a... a, a they got busted, now they have a desire to you know, like reclaim whatever money and they happen to run into Spider-Man again. There's a way to make this book a little more like tidy and clean than like introducing even more villains, right? Like make both stories tie into each other. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. There was definitely kind of a missed shot here. And then of course we then jump into the aforementioned Peter and MJ scene. Obviously the big reunion from issue one, it would have been really suspect to not revisit this but we revisit it but, but we don't really learn anything more about what suddenly brought these two characters back together again after what seemed well literally the last 10 years of being apart right yeah we get three pages on this which is not a ton but it's not insubstantial enough to even begin dipping your toes into this and most of the time is spent with like peter being you know incredulous about it just as much as we might be incredulous about it and you know, any the only information we're really offered from MJ is that she is, like, that they've been given an opportunity at a fresh start at this. And I don't know if she's, like, specifically talking about the editors of this book. 
Because, I mean, the words fresh start are this whole, you know, Marvel's big push right now. So she's obviously doing like a meta reference to that. But like other than referring to the editors who finally said, okay, you can bring MJ back and have her, you know, date Peter. Like we're not given any other like kind of insight as to why her attitude has changed. And so the end result is I remain as incredulous as Peter to the point of kind of pushing me over into like skeptical territory, which I think is not where you want me to be in this book. Yeah, I mean, you know, it feels like there's been a lot of lip service paid since that first issue came out about trying to kind of convince people like us to not feel like the rug is going to be pulled out from under us. And it's great that so far the, you know, if you go to some interviews that Nick Spencer has given, you know, he's he's more or less said, no, 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 this is real. And I, that's that's all well and good. But the fact of the matter is uh, nothing that is being written in this book thus far to me, indicates that anything has truly profoundly changed. So, you know, like, we need to start seeing that soon, I think. Not, you know, it's two issues. Let's, it's fine. But, like, you know, at some point, we, we do need to kind of get to the core of, well, what actually happened here? What, what you know, what, what changed between issue 690, uh, 794 or whenever that whole thing went down a few months ago and now? And we still don't know. Yeah, and last uh, you know episode of, of our Patreon feed, we kind of discussed, you know, is it okay to revert this character back to who she was, you know, counter to what we a lot of people consider was kind of a character assassination done to her during Brand New Day. You know, it's like, is it like two wrongs make a right if you kind of revert the character back to the best of, you know, who she was, which was like kind of during the JMS run where the character was written, I think pretty spectacularly. I think everyone would agree, but, but now it seems like, okay, so we're reverting the character back to who she was, but we're reverting her back to who she was when she was the worst of Mary Jane, which is like not giving her an an interior life and having her just be kind of this fawned upon love of Peter's. So like until we get an idea that she has some kind of, internal reasoning behind her change and what she's how she continues to exist in this book she's just going to be the thing that people complained about for a long time as peter's you know so-called wife yeah absolutely on the on the plus side you know a lot of people were kind of critical of ryan otley's rendering of uh mj in issue number one i i I, her figure I, i felt he did a better job with her this time especially like the panel that kind of showed her through the annals of time and kind of capturing very briefly some historic moments between the two of them. Like, I don't know, this felt a little more true to form, if you will. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think my favorite comment on this was um, our friend of the show, Alan Churstall, wrote me and said, I can't help but think that MJ looks like a character from ElfQuest. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think she's a lot better now in, in, in where she was handled in this book. And I think that's pretty much true of the art across the board. I mean, I love the first issue, but I feel like the characters are slowly kind of like, uh, falling back into their more classic imagery in, in this particular issue than the last one. Um, and, and also like how Spider-Man moves is more spider like than I think the first issue, which kind of leaned into some kind of more invincible and kind of Superman-esque posing for him. So 
I think we're only seeing kind of like improvements in a kind of like minor way with each issue uh, on a book I already thought was absolutely beautiful. Oh, absolutely. And of course, we get the lizard here in this issue, which, you know, you would probably agree with, is a pretty good figure for Otley to be drawing, given his, his backstory. Now, I mean, I think the lizard, when he's a lizard, looks great, but the story itself is a little, a little problematic, would you say? Yeah, where do you want to begin with this? Well, I mean, I'm not going to lie, Dan. I, the, the lizard has kind of strayed so far from where he was, hell, even 15, 20 years ago. I, I, I don't even, like, I, I lose track of what heinous, awful thing he's done, to, you know, in recent times. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I know he, you know, killed Billy, and then he tried to turn everyone into lizards, and, you know, he had apparently, you know, Kirk Connors was no more. He had been devoured by the spirit of the lizard or whatever the heck it was. And, you know, whereas I feel like, you know, in the game of improv, in the first issue, Nick Spencer was kind of doing the yes and to a lot of Dan Slott stuff. This this just seemed to, to be like a complete gloss over of everything the lizard has been through. And it's like kind of like, you know, I feel like I'm opening a comic from the 90s and it's like all of a sudden, like, it's just the lizard and the Kirk, and you know, battling with Kirk Connors again. Now he's got an inhibitor chip and it's like, well, what about... And like Spider-Man kind of jokes about, oh, what about when he does this and this? But like, you know him joking about it and kind of being meta about it doesn't actually change the fact that in the story itself, no one is acknowledging all the awful things that this character, this character being Kirk Connors has done, which is weird. Right. We could still find out that like these experiments that he's doing are meant to kind of save his, like whatever you want to call them, weird lizard clone family that he was able to resurrect during the clone conspiracy. Are they like, they were last we saw them, they were living in the sewers with him. Um, and I, I, this does not seem like that character. But last we saw him, it was still Kurt Connors, but stuck in a lizard body. And, you know, not, not only is that absent, but now he's like freely switching between his role as a lizard and Kurt Connors at will. I love this kind of like reversion to the status quo for the lizard, right? We're getting back to like the bare essence of the character, but like a little lip service to like, you're like, oh, we figured out a way to whatever w- would go like a long way. It could be like one bubble, you know, um, just to get us past it. Yeah, I mean, it needs more explanation. But yeah, I mean, like like I said, like I, 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 I kind of feel that there's a just because you're acknowledging through a wink and a nod that you're cheating doesn't change the fact that you're cheating. And I feel that this is a cheat. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like. There, like you said, there there needs to be more service paid in terms of why we are where we are, and just kind of like joking about it and brushing aside doesn't make me as the reader say, oh well, you know, if they're just going to joke and move on, I can move on too. I mean, like you know, I don't need to be sitting here and have every literal thing explained to me. But like you said, just a couple 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 of details. It could it could be explained in. Two panels, probably, you know? Yeah. But at the same time, and I think we were probably critical of this, too, is that Dan Slott also never really kept to his own changes with the lizard. You remember when he was a cannibal whose entire body was made out of sensitive brain material? Right. Right, 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 right. How do I forget? I mean, <laughs> I, I, even Dan Slott forgot about that, and probably for the better. Yeah. 
Well, like I said, Dan, I, I, I've had a hard time keeping up exactly. Like when you mentioned the cloak conspiracy, I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. He was in that, too. Like it's it's the character has just been so all over the map. And, you know, like you said, I, I, I like the idea of kind of just getting, you know, for lack of a better phrase, back to basics with this character because he's a cool character. I like the, I mean, Lizard's one of the best villains in Spider-Man's rogues gallery. But, you know, we, we, we it still needs to transition somehow organically. So moving past like this new status quo for the lizard, I do kind of like where it seems the story they're going, you know, they're using this character to kind of advance the story. We get this kind of, um, you know, idea that like Peter and Connors are very much alike. They both, you know, have been kind of turned into, you know, like super powered individuals via their kind of merger with some kind of animal or spider or whatever you want to call it and um and and the idea that these are two characters that just kind of like science for science sake like they aren't thrill seekers money makers they're just kind of um you know advancing science which i think is why like this idea of peter parker college student to me feels like immediately like oh this seems like a right place for him right um, and we get the return of, uh, or maybe it's not quite a return because we've, I don't know if we've ever gotten a name for this thing before, but the machine that turned Peter Parker into Spider-Man, the Isotope Genome Accelerator, which apparently is now, I think this is a retcon, that it was intentionally used for transmuting characteristics of one organism onto another. What did you make of this? I mean, I, I don't think it makes a ton of sense. Like, I always thought they were just doing a display on atomic radiation but now they were trying to kind of zap animals or something like that why not dan i don't know (laughs) (laughs) a fight breaks out and uh and the lizard transforms back into the lizard and i guess kurt connors transforms into the lizard and gets frozen by this very doc ock spider-man 2 inhibitor chip at at the worst moment and the spider-man has to mix these chemicals together so that he can create a sort of chemical cloud and fight off Taskmaster and Black Ant uh, in the classroom um, and save everyone, ultimately revealing this kind of twist ending where Spider-Man goes to pick up everybody who's been laying on the ground and pulls up one person who turns out to be none other than Peter Parker. Mark, lots of thoughts to be had on this one. Are we getting into the oh no clone territory again? I don't think it's going to be clones. You know, it's it's funny as you were talking about that intro page with the Craven. Most likely, we also you know talking about family Craven off. There's also Chameleon. Maybe it's Chameleon. Maybe he's in the class for some reason, and maybe that was the 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 the, the premise of that first panel. We'll find out. Or it could be multiverse stuff. You know, we're getting. I know Spencer's really not involved with it, but we are going to get more Spider Versey type stuff uh, coming up in a few months. Um, but I don't think we're going to do clones again. I mean, we just did clones. I know clones are fun. Everyone wants to do clones, but you know, I think we're done with clones. <laughs> I, I have my own theories about this. I mean, I think if I'm reading it correctly on the page, I suspect that this Peter somehow emerged in this kind of chemical mixing process. Is that is that your read on what's happening on the page? Yes. So my suspicion is that we're going to get a split 
Spider and Peter uh, story here, where you know we've got Connors trying to. He says he's you know trying to use this reverse engineer the thing that turned them into who they are in in, in I guess any other words right so. How do you undo the lizard and man combo? How do you undo the spider and man combo? And I think that perhaps Peter accidentally stumbled onto it. So my suspicion is that um, we've split Spider-Man from Peter Parker and that they are going to be two separate entities, right? Spencer has always said that he really wants to deal with how you know Peter Parker's life is affected by Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. And I think what he's doing is trying to kind of lean into the idea, well, what if they were two different people and Peter's life was suddenly freed up from having to deal with the Spider-Man stuff? But I also think that he's going to try to use this, if I'm correct, to deal with the MJ scenario, which we complained about earlier. I think he's going to use it as an opportunity to see, does MJ love Peter for just Peter, or does she love Peter for Peter and Spider-Man as one individual? What do you think about this theory? I mean, it's wacky. It's wacky, Dan. But I mean, I, I'm I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. I mean, it's like you've never not been wrong. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just curious, though. Like, if it is like if it is what I'm saying, it is like. If they've been split into two people, does that mean that Spider-Man is just the spider element? Like, if he pulls his mask up, is it, like, mandibles under there and all kinds of craziness? Um, Or is it, like, there's two Peter Parkers and one of them happens to have spider powers? You know, it's kind of a classic Spider-Man story to have him dealing with, like, if he could get rid of his powers, would he? Kind of thing, you know what I mean? And um, it's never been handled in this way, where it literally becomes two different people that I guess could ultimately be merged back together again in, in some way. But I just think, like, if we're going to move forward with this Mary Jane thing, as we said earlier, we kind of have to address why she changed her mind about being okay with Peter being Spider-Man, and why not just get right to the case and have her make her choice? You know, what, do you want Peter, or do you want Peter and Spider-Man? You know, like, I, I think that's a great way to kind of, like, literalize the the core theme of the book it's a good theory i mean it it certainly would be different you know what i mean like in terms of where the odd you know i mean i was kind of when i was speculating chameleon i mean you know that's a story we've seen before i don't know what justice there would be in kind of going back over that ground again but certainly what you're talking about here is something very unique and different so let's see yeah, so anyway, put that one in the books. That's my theory. I think some other people online have also kind of posited this similar theory. So I'm not, like, alone as a prognosticator on this. So, you know, we'll, we'll see how it all uh, shapes up. At the very least, it's an intriguing hook to the end of this book. Yes, and we also get a nice kind of callback uh, with the cover image to uh, Spectacular Spider-Man 226 by a uh, friend of the pod, Tom DeFalco. Yeah, uh, then the cover to issue three is uh, certainly intriguing, a very simple cover. The two of them seeming going to war, so Peter versus Spider-Man. Uh, we may not have like loved this issue as much as the first one, but like my anticipation is still equally high. Like I'm ready for the next one in however many weeks it is. Indeed. Uh, do you want to give this puppy a grade? Yeah, sure. I'm giving this one a B minus. 
Yeah, I'm right there with you. B minus. I mean, you know, this was pretty solid. Just just some just some quibbles that we're talking about. But let's see where it goes. You know. Yeah, absolutely. So, Mark, I, I actually wanted to revisit something back from issue one that I kind of have been thinking about since doing that review. And I posted this long kind of like Twitter, I don't know, not tirade, I'd say kind of like discussion or my own thought process, thinking about the character from the end of the last issue, that new mysterious villain. And I kind of wanted to get my thoughts on that down on tape so that I could be proven horribly wrong with two speculations in one episode. Um, what do you think about that? All right, go for it. And I'd also be curious to get your feedback on this because I know you like thought my, you know, pitch was intriguing, but like, do you think, I'm curious to think if if you think there's any solid, uh, thoughts behind this, but I was thinking like, we got this character who's all wrapped up, whose face we can't see, you know, there's a hidden identity there for some reason as we discussed, but who could this possibly be? And, and I, I've been racking my brain about what would make it interesting and what you might want to do with this. And I think, obviously, Mephisto is the first place you'd go. Um, but Mephisto is actually tied up currently. But it got me thinking, what was the result of Mephisto's deal with Peter and MJ regarding their marriage? Because he doesn't really say anything solid about what he's going to use that for, correct? It's just kind of like to make him get his jollies. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 the, it's the barter, you know what I mean? I don't know if there's anything more to it than that. Yeah, but I was thinking, like, what if he did get something out of that and he was able to use that marriage in some kind of way, and, and if Peter and MJ get back together again, would it undo Mephisto's deal with them, right? Like, does, does that mean that Mephisto can start, you know, being involved in Peter's life again and that the, the marriage itself, like... Um, like that deal would protect itself. So, so here's my crazy theory. I think that this thing that is coming after them is the marriage. I think it is the marriage personified. It is everything that people have thought about the Spider-Man marriage, the positives, the negatives, the way it's been dragged through the mud, erased, beaten up, harmed over all the years. And it's going to come back for Peter and MJ to directly deal with. The reason it knows them so well is because it is a part of them materialized. Because for me, if we're going to go back into this Mary Jane thing, we, we need to know why MJ wants back into a relationship with Spider-Man. But then as a community of Spider-Man fans and readers, like I feel like, the only way we can get past this is if we directly deal with the marriage within the pages of this comic and what happened during One More Day in a way that is satisfying. Like, there's just no way around it. Like, it has to be figured out. And I think the best way you figure it out is by just making them confront it themselves within the pages of the comic. So that's my crazy theory. This thing is the spider marriage as a person, whatever form that takes which is why we can't see its face. And that's what's coming back for them. I don't know, Mark, is this too crazy? Honestly, Dan, I mean, when you first proposed it, you argued it really well, and I don't disagree with it. I, I mean, like, I, I can't honestly think... what The thing is also, Dan, I, I don't know... We, we've literally had two issues now of Nick Spencer. So I don't know 
kind of what his shtick is. I know you've read him on Captain America, and we've we've obviously read him on Superior Foes of Spider Man, but like I, you know, it's 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 hard after two issues to really get a sense of where someone is going to take a character like Spider Man. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it, how he's going to mine parts of the mythology and and the backstory. So it's it's to me it's very difficult to speculate at this stage. I kind of I'm I'm kind of loathe to do it if i'm being honest i mean yeah. i'm not trying to, i'm not trying to dump cold water on what you're saying here but what you're saying makes as much sense as anything else do i think you might be proven horribly wrong absolutely because i have no idea where nick spencer is going with it like you know talk to me in a year and i might be able to better predict how nick spencer might go with the character you know what i mean like after a while it became much easier to predict someone like Dan Slott because you kind of knew where he was going. He had planted seeds. There were things to look for. We got none of that here. You know what I mean? Like there, you know, if, if we're, if Nick Spencer's playing the long game, you know, we're, we're two issues in. So all I'm going to say is what you argued makes sense. I'd be interested in reading that story, but I can't, in any good conscious, like, be like, yep, that's it. Because, I, you know what I mean? Like, we just don't know. We just don't know where he's going yet, you know? Like, so I, I'd rather give it some time before I feel more comfortable putting formal predictions out there. Yeah, and I really don't want this to sound at like, like me being like, well, that's what I would want to read or that's what I would do. Like, I'm not trying to, like, ghost write this comic in any way. Like, it, like that's, it's the best guess I have and again, you're right. Maybe I shouldn't necessarily be predicting because I also don't really know. Like I, we said during this review of this issue, is like we were very much expecting this comic to go a different direction than it ultimately did. Like there's no part of me during issue one would go, well, during issue two, we're going to get this weird maybe clone of Peter that shows up, right? So like, again, this is just me having fun with speculating and then hoping that like in a one of a million chance I'm right. And then I can just like pretend that I was actually really smart. Right. Which may be really or vain the, of me. So, so, so just ignore me in general. It's probably what I'm saying. Or the man in red could just be Ben Riley. Right. So there you go. <laughs> and Norman Osborn could be Norman Osborn. Exactly. So anyway, good stuff, Dan. I like that you put it out there. Good for you. I hope you're not wrong. <laughs> I just just ex- exposed myself to a ton of like vulnerability regarding this. There you go. All right. Well, thanks for joining us for our review roundup episode of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. Uh, what's coming down for the pike for us in the future, Dan? Well, we can't really say for sure what's coming during the break. Mark, you and I have been reaching out to people trying to line up some uh, interviews and other exciting stuff. I know at the very least I'll be reviewing the Spider-Man game from PlayStation 4 uh, in an upcoming episode. I just finished it last night, and I can't wait to talk about it. Um, And I expect that I'll be inviting Chris Baker back on the show to talk about that. And um, I'm also trying to get an interview with people of Seattle's Mopop Museum, which has a big Marvel exhibit. And so keep your eyes on the feed for some exciting interviews from, from those sources, possibly. Absolutely. And we'll see what else we can get in the interim. Um, also, for our Patreon subscribers, be sure to check out our Patreon page and your podcast feed this week, uh, where we already got special reviews of the entire Nick Spencer and Ryan Otley run up through issue number five and a roundup review of all of August's B-Titles books. 
why, why wait to get caught up in a few months? Remember, for just $3.99 a month, the price of a new comic, you'll get access to our exclusive new issue reviews, b-book reviews, extended interviews, mailbags, and more. And for $10 or more a month, you'll get access to some awesome commission artwork. Uh, this time, uh, call, <laughs> I guess a little bit of an audible here, uh, Dan. We're going to have some awesome artwork from Steve Lieber. Awesome, Mark. Well, you can also check out, if you are if you want even more content, you can check out our brother show, The Untold Talks of Spider-Man, part of our podcasting network. And they've been going through forgotten variations of Spider-Man that they think might show up in Spider-Geddon as they prepare to cover that event. So that's really been exciting. Plus, we've also got the amazing Spider-Slack community for you to join. It's the best place to go if you want to just chat with other Spider fans, it's part of our network and our community. So go to the show notes and you'll find a link to that there. Absolutely, Dan. Dan, besides the Spider Slack and this podcast, where can we find you uh, on, in the great World Wide Web? Yeah, you can find all of my writings about new Spider-Man comics and my current battle with Comicsgate over on Twitter at, at SupSpiderTalk. That's awesome. I mean, you know, the more that fight comics gate, right? Because it's 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 a battle that's going well, I hear. I I guess so. I don't know. I, I I'm trying to be reasonable about it and actually talk to people, but you know, that's kind of hard in the world of the internet and 140 characters. Absolutely. What about you, Mark? Well, you can of course find me on Chasing ASM blog, and you can always get my book, 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Awesome. Well, like uh, was affirmed in in most modern Spider-Man lore, there is something that comes with great power. Mark, do you want to tell us what that complete motto is? Yeah, well, it's actually not with great power. It's with great podcasts must also come the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk. 